Now, I want to encourage you, go ahead and turn to Revelation, Revelation chapter 5. That's the last book of the Bible. If you're not familiar with the Word of God, if you don't have a Bible, you can pick one of those up out at Info Central. We have free ones. We'd love to be able to give out to you. Um, but I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 5 as we continue on in our, um, in our uh, sermon series. And we invite Shelly Merritt up to read for us out of Revelation chapter 5. And would you please stand with me out of respect for God's Word? Shelly, I'll pass it off to you, sister. Good morning, family. Revelation 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and the golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Church, go ahead, have a seat, pray with me. Father, we pray that prayer, honor and glory and might to you. Father, that's what we want this morning. We want you to be glorified. We want um, your son to be lifted high. Father, I pray this morning that you would help us to see the wonders of what you have revealed to us through your servant, John. Father, speak through me, a weak vessel. Father, may my words be your words, and if they're my words alone, may they be forgotten. Father, may they pass by and bear no fruit. But Father, we pray now as your people, we come to, to hear from you, not to hear from me or, or any of the other teachers that will be teaching the rest of our morning, but we want to hear from you. We want to be moved by you. And so, Spirit, we ask that you would move in us. Open our eyes, open our ears, do a work in us that we might be your people, that we might step into the things that you've called us to be. That we, as we've talked about so much in this series so far, that we might uh, make the necessary adjustments to our lives to be faithful and obedient, that we might conquer. 
Father, we pray that you'd be with us, that you'd give us your favor, and pray and ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, some of you may wonder why Shelly got so much applause when she walked up. Um, If you don't know, um, and I don't think she would mind me saying this, I didn't ask, but uh, um, we are celebrating a lot of answered prayers for Shelly as she has just come out of a 100-day, well, a little longer than that, but a battle with um, uh, blood cancer and has now um, gotten some phenomenal news from the doctors and is here with us. And so we're all celebrating that, and that truly is... um, uh, it is an answer to prayer, and, that, and that's what I know we and Shelly want us to be reminded of over and over. This is the Lord's hand. It's his work. Um, she uh, didn't do anything in that process. He just worked in her, and so we're super grateful for the Lord to that, um, and we just we believe that he answers prayers, and so we always want to come to him. You know, last week, we talked about entering into the throne room. We looked at the throne room and all that that means for us. And I hope that over the past week or so, as you've gone through Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and all the things that you have to go about in your day-to-day lives, that, that you've pondered and thought about what that means for you, that you've thought about what it looks like to orient your life in relation to that understanding that he is on the throne, that you've pondered what it means to hallow his name or to keep his name holy as you as a believer bear the name of the one who sits upon the throne through his son Jesus. Like I hope that you've thought about that and you've wrestled with that and you've walked and tried to walk in that this week. And I know it may have been hard and you may have felt like you've failed at that at times. And that's why we come back to the table every week and we're reminded of the grace and the mercy of God. We know that's a challenge, but we're now given something even well, I don't want to say even cooler, like we're given something equally as amazing as John continues on with the vision that he was given by the Lord. And now when you're reading the book of Revelation, whenever you see the terms, and then I saw, like you need to pay attention. And I heard one scholar said, or I read one scholar who said uh, that it's not so important what happens next as much as what John sees next, that that is a big deal, that he's making transitions And what does John see next in this vision? He sees the throne, and then he sees a scroll. He sees a scroll. In the right hand of the one who sits upon the throne, John sees this scroll. What is this scroll? What does it say? Why is it sealed? It's got to be important. It's in the hands of the ancient of days. So what is this scroll? We might ask. We might have all kinds of questions about this. But here's the thing about the scroll. While it seems like a mystery to us, this isn't the first time that we've seen this scroll. I've told you before that everything we look at in Revelation, we need to be mindful of where have we seen this before. And we've actually seen this scroll, it seems like anyway, in the book of Ezekiel chapter 2 but also in the book of Daniel. And that's what I want to look at this morning as we start this discussion in Daniel chapter 12. Because Michael tells Daniel that this angel Michael comes to Daniel and he says that there's going to be difficulty that's going to come at the end of days and there's going to be a deliverance for his people when God will raise up everyone, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. And then... This is what is said in Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. So 
Interesting, we see a sealed book. Now, don't let the book trip you up versus the scroll. Um, There's a lot of scholars who think that's the same idea, but we're talking Hebrew and Greek and all these different things. But it looks like we see a scroll that's been sealed in the book of Daniel. You remember the book of Daniel, Daniel's seen all kinds of visions about what's going to happen in the latter days and what's going to happen for the people of Israel and even what God is going to accomplish as he walks down uh, the path of history. And yet there's this book that's now been sealed. And look what happens then in Daniel chapter 12, verse 6. It generates some questions. Well, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? Daniel himself asks uh, in verse 8, Oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of this, these things? Like These are legitimate questions, right? Like, okay, you've just given us this book. You've given us this scroll. You've sealed it up in regards to what's going to happen in the end days. Well, how long is it going to be? Like, what's going to take place? Like, how, how's it going to all pan out? Like, are you going to finish this? Are you going to give me the dates? Well, he doesn't. Daniel lives and dies, and he never sees the fulfillment of this. But John, now in heaven, as the door of heaven has been opened up to him, seems to be seeing the same scroll, which has written upon it God's ultimate plan of judgment Defeat of sin, death, Satan, and the redemption of God's people. Now you look at that as you look at the scroll in Ezekiel and Daniel, but it seems to be that that's what this scroll represents. All of God's redemptive plan. Written on the front and written on the back. And John, he's remembering Daniel chapter 12, this sealed scroll. And he's hoping, I believe he's hoping anyway, to see it unsealed because he knows what that means. He knows that if this starts to get unsealed, that the time of the end is here. But John is immediately brought to weeping because he hears a question in Revelation chapter 5, verse 2, and we read it this morning. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And when you get a question like that, the assumed answer is, like, no one. Well, like, that's got to be what John's thinking, which is why he begins to weep. Like, wait a minute, like, who's worthy to go up to the Ancient of Days and take the scroll of his entire plan of redemption out of his hand and open those seals? Like, no one's worthy to do that. I mean, John certainly knew he wasn't worthy to do that. And so he begins to weep because in his hope to see the scroll begun to be open, like, now it seems like it's going to be shut. And when's it ever going to get open? Like, that's the same question Daniel had. Like, how's this all going to come to pass And as he's weeping there, we get Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. And an elder that's there around the throne of God says this, Weep no more. And another word you need to always pay attention to, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Behold, A lion. Behold a lion. He sees a scroll. He wants it opened. He begins to weep because no one's worthy to open it. And an elder cries out and says, listen, stop weeping because behold a lion. Now that makes sense to us, doesn't it? I mean, surely if anything's going to have the power to open this thing up, it's going to be a lion. But he goes and gives these titles, the Lion of Judah, and he gives the root of Jesse, And to us, we're like, I don't, I mean, most of us, if you've been around the church, you're like, okay, well, that's Jesus. 
But for a lot of us, we're like, I don't know what those terms mean, and I don't have any idea what they mean or what they signify. If you were a Jew living in that day, if you were John, you hear those titles, and you know exactly what characteristics he's talking about. You know exactly who you're waiting for. You know exactly what you're waiting for. I'll give you a little bit of an analogy. Um, If I were to tell you that I'm about to introduce to you someone who has the eye of a tiger... There's some of you from some generation that know what I'm talking about characteristically. Like, right? I say eye of the tiger, and some of y'all think about Rocky Balboa. You know, you, you fight to the end, no matter how hard it is, you just keep pushing, you run up those steps, and you do the little dance, which I kind of did, but I'm not really going to do because that's embarrassing, right? Like, you think Rocky Balboa. Like, some of you are thinking, eye of the tiger, like, what's that? Wasn't that made in like the 70s? And you have no idea, like there's certain words that we use, we understand culturally because they've been part of who we are. Like this is the, that on a whole nother level. Because the people of Israel knew exactly what it meant to talk about the Lion of Judah and the Root of Jesse. Because they were told what those characteristics would be in the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 49, verses 9 and 10, which is where we get the idea of the Lion of Judah, we are seeing a, a blessing given to the tribe of Judah. And this is what it says in Genesis chapter 49. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the, shall be the obedience of the peoples. No, no, leave that up for those of you, if you're back in the slide room, like, leave that up, because what you're looking at in this text is a prophecy that the people of Israel knew that was someday there was going to be a king that was going to come from the tribe of Judah and fulfill this. He was not going to ever have a kingdom that was going to be destroyed. Like He was going to hold the scepter, and he was going to rule forever. So when they hear Lion of Judah, they're thinking this passage. Now, I don't love the term tribute there. That's not the best translation for us because it's actually the word Shiloh, and it means that those that would come to him is all that belongs to him. And just think about that. And to him shall be, or the, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until all that belongs to him comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. This is the characteristic of the Lion of Judah. He will rule. Who dares to rouse this lion? Like that's what John thinks. Like that's what you would think too if you were thinking, okay, someone's got to be worthy to open this scroll, but it doesn't end there. Isaiah 11 talks about the root of Jesse as one who would have the very spirit of the Lord upon him. He would be wise, full of counsel and might. He would judge by what his eyes see and his ears hear. My favorite verse is verse 4 of Isaiah 11. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. This sounds like one who could open a scroll. And that's what John's thinking too. The fulfillment of the prophecy that is given to Daniel is beginning. One is coming to strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. 
He's going to destroy all the wicked. He's going to defeat all who have stood against him. He's going to establish his kingdom. He's going to take dominion. He's going to hold the scepter in his hand. Behold, the Lion of Judah and the Root of Jesse. He is coming to unseal the scroll, to unroll God's final plan. The end is here. That's what John is seeing. Imagine John expected to see, as he turned, Jesus standing there, maybe with the scepter in his hand, maybe Jesus covered in battle armor. I don't know what John expected, but I imagine that what he saw was a shock. Because he turns, and what does he see? He says, I saw a lamb. Wait, what? Like that, that's not what I just heard about. Like I, I thought I was going to get the Lion of Judah. I thought I was going to get the one holding a scepter. I thought I was going to get the one who, with a breath of his mouth, could kill all the wicked on the earth in a second. Like I thought that's who I was getting, and I turn around and I look, and it's a lamb who's been slain. Like this is a massive contrast. This feels a little bit like an April Fool's joke, right? Like We're coming up on that. Like, wait, that's not what I expected, a lamb. Like, I want the lion. I want the lion. This is massively important for us to understand. Because here we see some very important things. The first thing that we see is this picture gives us a nature of his reign now and the expectation of his reign to come. This picture gives us an, a, a picture of his, the nature of his reign now and the expectation of his reign to come. Jesus is the Lion of Judah and the Root of Jesse, make no mistake. But John and us also see him as a slain lamb. He's not weak. In fact, it's quite the opposite. See, in this image, we're also given that this lamb that looks slain has seven horns, and those seven, remember we've talked about, numbers mean something in Revelation. Seven is complete, uh, uh, utmost, like fullness. And horns represent throughout the scriptures power and, and authority. It talks oftentimes about kingdoms being horns. Well, Jesus, he has ultimate power, ultimate authority. So this flame slam, he's not weak by any stretch of the imagination. He's got seven eyes. Now, as creepy as that sounds, that's intended to give a signal that this is the fullness of the Spirit of God is on him, in him, just like Isaiah 11 said, but he also has the power to send it forth into the world. Now, this is not a weak image at all, but it is different. It is different. So what is the nature of his reign like? What is it that we need to see in regards to how this lamb is going to reign that is so important for us? Well, first, we see that to conquer is to lay down one's life. Jesus was meek, not weak. I love how someone put this, and I can't remember where I heard it, but Jesus was immensely dangerous as a lion. And you don't want to mess with a lion. I just got back from Africa. We actually saw a lion on a little safari that we did. Like You don't want to mess with a lion. They are dangerous. But in his wisdom and his power, he came in meekness. This is not passivity. This is not weakness. It is having the power, but choosing to keep the sword in the sheath. Don't ever forget that. That as Jesus is being led to the cross, it wasn't by lack of power that he was led to the cross. 
He had all the power in the world to say, I'm done. He had all the power in the world to say, come and get me, angels. All the power in the world to say, you're done, and snuff all of those people out of existence. But he chose to keep that power in its sheath. That is true power. To have it, to be able to wield it, and be willing to say, no, I'm going to lay my life down instead. Do not mistake Jesus for a weak man or a weak God. He is nothing like that. He's immensely powerful, but he is choosing not to use it. Jesus defeats evil not with the sword. He defeats evil with death. He holds the rod. With the word, he could have easily delivered himself, and he chose not to. So the nature of his reign is to conquer through sacrifice. It's to conquer through sacrifice. But we also see this. He absorbs the hurts of others. The sin, the wrath that is due you and me, he absorbed that into himself. God made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might be the righteousness of God. Like he chose in the midst of his power, all the power he had, to be led to the cross and then voluntarily absorb into himself the, the very debt and the suffering and the, the pain that I am deserved into himself. He didn't have to come to heaven. He could have stayed far away from the sickness and the brokenness and the hurts and the insults and the injustices of this world. He chose to step into it instead. He absorbed it. He walked with us as our God. Like he absorbs the hurts of others. Next, his conquering leads to dominion. He conquered as a lamb, but make no mistake, he will take the throne as a lion. History and life is a story of unworthy rulers in this world. Satan, death, other men having dominion over us. We are to have dominion as men and women over no one in his stead. No man is to rule another man as the ultimate authority. There is only one who is to have dominion, and that is Jesus. Only one who everybody is called to obey, that is Jesus. There's only one who everyone is to bend their knee towards, that is Jesus. Remember Genesis, that is what it was prophesying. Every time we assert dominion over someone else or live under the dominion of someone else, we find a need to be delivered. And Jesus is doing just that. Again, look at Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That is a hopeful verse, isn't it? This has been accomplished for us. The new song that we read in Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, recounts this. Jesus you are worthy to open up the seals, to bring completion to God's purposes. You've ransomed for yourself a people. You delivered them from underneath the dominion of Satan and death and other ungodly men. Instead of slaves to these things, we are made a kingdom. We are given purpose as priests, which we will get to as we go on in this text. But we've been called to reign with him, not over other men, but over creation. 
as it's intended to be. The lamb is the lion. He conquered through death. Conquered through death. And listen, the hard part for us, and it was hard for John's people in his days, is that while we believe that he is the one who has dominion over all things, we still see wicked and evil people having dominion over others. Like we're still waiting for this to be finalized and done and over with. That is a promise that is sure for us. Because here's what we know. Ultimately, Jesus is also the focal point of history, isn't it? George Eldon Ladd puts it this way in his commentary on the book of Revelation. He says, apart from the person and redeeming work of Jesus Christ, history is an enigma. It's a puzzle. It's a mystery. It has no purpose. Apart from Jesus, there is no purpose to anything. History is pointless. History is pointless. This leads us to a second important thing that we see in this lion and lamb imagery. It sets the stage for the rest of the book of Revelation. Which is why, like last week, this is such an important part as we continue on in this study. Remember, at the beginning of our time, I pointed us to the fact that the ceiling of the scroll was being taken apart, that it was about to be revealed. And remember what the angel said to Daniel in verse 12, or chapter 12, verse 4. But you, Daniel, you shut up the words and seal the book until the end of the time. It's supposed to be sealed until when? The end of the time. Until the time of the end. Jesus conquering through death and his resurrection and his ascension into heaven has placed him at the right hand of the throne of God. And John is now seeing the inauguration of the end. He's seeing the inauguration of the end. The rest of what we see in the days that we are living in and that which we have been in and experienced all of our lives, it's part of the process of his inauguration. The end from the time of Jesus is taking place. We're in that space right now. And there will be a day where he raises all the dead up, either to eternal life or eternal contempt. But in this time, we are in the end. So let me phrase it this way. Jesus is not stagnant in heaven. And we oftentimes think of Jesus and we think, oh, when is Jesus' second coming? When is his second coming? And we have this picture when we say that, that he's just sitting up in heaven, waiting, doing nothing. That could not be further from the truth. Brothers and sisters, he's coming right now. He hasn't arrived yet. We should be waiting for his second arrival, his second advent, but he's coming now. He is not waiting up in heaven just for some things to fall into place. No, he is orchestrating and moving history and moving the world into exactly what he wants it to be. He's coming now. And we will see that over and over and over and over and over again in Revelation. And so when we talk about the end times, like you're in the end times as defined by Daniel and John now. Now, that does not mean that there's not going to be an escalation as we get near to Jesus' arrival. But right now, he's coming. He is not stagnant. He's not just sitting up in heaven waiting for some things to take place. He is moving history. And what we are going to see is he is now peeling off the seals of that scroll, God's redemptive purpose to its final completion until the day where he raises up some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. Don't miss this. 
So often the church is waiting for something to happen. We're waiting for more to happen. No, no, it's happening now in our lives, in this moment. And it has been for 2,000 years. And again, it doesn't mean that things aren't going to escalate. But it does mean that now is not the time to just sit and wait. Next, this shows us how we are to conquer and how we are to overcome You may hear all this and be like, oh, this is so cool. This is so neat, but how does this affect my life right now? How am I supposed to keep this? How am I supposed to like actually live in accordance with this? Well, here's the part we get to that where we have to ask ourselves the question, are we as Christians willing to make the necessary adjustments in our lives to be faithful and obedient to what it is God is calling us to? In fact, We need to be reminded that if we are to reign with him and by him, we must reign as he does. Conquer as he does. We have to follow his example. Let me start off with a quote as we get into this by Daryl Johnson. He says this, and this is a profound statement. The cross is not only the grounds of our salvation, it is also the pattern of our salvation. It is the way of our salvation. If you want to conquer... If you want to conquer, you and I have to be willing to follow the way of the cross. This is the pattern of the cross, the pattern of dying. Will we then be willing to lay down our lives? Lay down our lives. This is a core and fundamental part of what it is to be a believer in Jesus Christ. He says it over and over again. Uh, take up your cross. Bear your cross. If, you're willing to, you, if you try to save your life, you're going to lose it. If you're willing to lose your life for my sake, you're going to find it over and over again. Like If you want to conquer, there's only one way to do it, to die. Like This is not popular in our day and age. This is not even popular in a lot of churches that you might have the opportunity to go to one day. Because the message ultimately oftentimes is, is that, you know what, Jesus loves you so much that he wants you to have your best life now. No, he doesn't. He wants you to die now. And and trust him to raise you up in the last days. To trust him with your life now and then. This is a core and fundamental part of the gospel. And to lose it is to lose the gospel. Don't miss this. We are to lay our lives down. Lay our lives down to our desires. Like If you've come to faith in Jesus... You know the difference the way your desires were prior to coming to him and after. And to say no to those things is hard, is it not? It is for me. Because they feel natural. They feel right. They feel good. I have to die to them. Dying's not pretty. Ever. Ever. That's hard. Sometimes we have to die to our rights. We have to lay down our finances. We have to lay down our plans, lay down our relationships, lay down our time. The things that cause us to sin, the things that cause us to stumble, we're to lay those things down. Men in this room, will you seek to be immensely dangerous and powerful people who keep the sword in the sheath and instead of trying to wield that power, you lay your life down for your spouses? You lay your life down for your kids. 
And young people, young men in this room, like you're being given a, a, a message by our culture that to be a man in this world means to be passive and weak. You are to be powerful and strong, but in that power, lay yourself down for the weak. That's the vision that Jesus gives you. Don't listen to the world's vision. You take the vision that Jesus has given to you and you become bold and you become strong, but you lay yourself down for those around you. This is fundamentally one of the most important things for us as Christians. We are to lay our lives down. Will we be a people willing to do it? Now it's hard. How do you do it practically? How do you do it practically? Maybe this week it's as simple as not listening to your desires to and instead laying yourself down for your spouse. Maybe Maybe it's saying, man, I, I'm not going to use my finances just for my kingdom. I'm going to give to the kingdom of God. I don't know what it is. I can't give you a specific thing. Um, that's for you and the Lord to work out between one another. But I would say this. Don't go this week without trying to step into this. And you know what you will find? You cannot do it on your own. You need Jesus to be there with you. Because we can't lay ourselves down. Not the way he did not without his help. This is part of who we're to be. We can't conquer any other way. We cannot conquer any other way. Second, you can guess where this is going, but we are also to be the people who absorb the hurts of others. We're to step into brokenness, step into sickness, step into weakness, you know, coming out of Kenya, I was writing this sermon, and I was thinking about this week, and I couldn't help but keep in my mind these brothers and sisters who were walking into the brokenness and the sickness and the death of the slums for the sake of Jesus. Over and over and over again, day after day, absorbing the hurts of those communities when they didn't have to. They could have easily stayed distant from them, they could have easily written checks to try to help make themselves feel better. They could have stayed far away from the slums. They didn't have to go, but they chose to absorb the hurts of others and walk towards it. Will we? It is way too easy in this world, and I can say this because I've been guilty of it. When we see the suffering around us, to simply just avert our eyes. I don't, I don't have to look at it. I don't have to look at the sickness and the pain and the death that is all around us. I don't have to look at the clear and obvious wreckage of sin in the life of my waiter or waitress when we go to lunch this, Sunday, or this afternoon. Like I, it's easier for me to avert my eyes and judge them than to think about the wounds and the brokenness that is there. It's easier for me to not look at the kids starving in Africa, to not look at... at men who are in prison or women who are in prison, to not look at the pain. It's easy to just avert our eyes and entertain ourselves. We are called to be the opposite of the world. And instead of avert our eyes, we are to turn our eyes and run towards it. Not for the sake of just causing pain to ourselves, but because we want to be like Jesus. And we want to be with Jesus. Will we be a people who are willing to absorb the hurts of others, the pain of others, for the sake of the gospel? 
I'm so glad Jesus was. Aren't you? To conquer, we must be marked by this characteristic. But we also need to be people who relinquish dominion to him. You and I should seek to rule over no one, but to serve everyone. That's hard. If you're a CEO of a company, how do you lead a company but serve those underneath you? If you're a manager, how do you manage people but serve those people underneath you? If, if you are in any other part of life and you know someone hates you and they seek to hurt you and to malign you and, and cause pain to you, how do you serve that person? Like That's really hard. If you've ever tried to do it, that's really hard. And yet, that's the call that Christ has put upon our lives. It's hard as a spouse to serve your spouse when your husband or wife isn't doing the same. It's easy to justify, well, why should I lay down my life? Why should I serve my spouse when they're not serving me? There's so many marriages that are literally in wreckage because both parties are trying to scramble for dominance over the other person. There are so many relationships in our lives, in our worlds, that are in wreckage because two people are trying to scramble for dominance over the other person. I deserve my rights. Nobody should have to say over me. No, no. As Christians, there's only one who has a say over us, and it's Jesus. And he says to serve. Jesus gave us the perfect example of this. He washed the feet of the man who would betray him to the cross. Jesus, who is the very nature of God, stepped off his throne and came down to this place to serve us. The master served. We are to be the same. We are to live the same. We are to be marked with the same kind of characteristic. Some of you know that you're in that space where you're fighting for dominance. You want to be on top. You don't want to serve. You have to decide whether or not you want to be obedient to Jesus or not. This also shows us that he has to be the focal point of our lives. Every part of our lives. If he is the focal point of God's ultimate plan of judgment, the defeat of sin, death, and Satan, and the redemption of all of his people, how could he not also be the focal point of your life and mine? You know, I, I, I say this and I think about it. I have all kinds of dreams and plans. I think we all do. And I feel a real deep sense of conviction when I think about this because a lot of those plans don't involve Jesus. I wasn't trying to. I wasn't trying to ignore him. It's just part of what I do. I make plans. I'm not trying to be bad. I'm not trying to be immoral. I'm not trying to ignore my Lord and Savior. But it's just, I just make plans. I just have dreams. And so often, he's just not there. We have to take those dreams, take those plans and we have to leverage them and turn them to fix their attention upon Jesus. This does not mean we don't have fun and we don't enjoy the life that God has given to us, but it does mean he needs to be the focal point of your dreams. He needs to be the focal point of your plans. 
He needs to be the focal point of our lives. And if he's not, there is room for us to grow. There's room for us to repent. And I know I need to at times. I want him. I want this picture of the lamb who takes the scroll to be the dominant picture of my life. What dominates my dreams and my plans, what dominates how I live and think about the people around me and the gifts that he's given to me and the time that he's given to me. See, here's the point about this text. We see the nature of our king and we see the nature of how he reigns and in this picture, we are given a hint as how we can conquer and overcome in the end. How many of you want to conquer? I mean, seriously, like, you can be active here. Like, how many of you want to overcome? How many of you want to conquer in the end? How many of you want to be the one who is raised up to eternal life, not raised up to eternal contempt? I want to be raised up to eternal life. There is only one way to do that, and it's his way. There's not 15 different ways, despite what the world would tell you. There's one way, and it's through Jesus Christ, and it's in faith in him, and giving our entire lives to him, and laying our entire lives over to him, because he has paid the price for your sin and mine. Amen? Like he is the Lion of Judah, the root of David, but he's also the Lamb who was slain. 